Look around. It doesn't take long to recognize the brokenness surrounding us. Division, hatred, fear, uncertainty. The pain we're witnessing is real, and the need for a savior is undeniable. It's this need which broke the heart of God and moved him to do the unimaginable. For God so loved the world, he sent his only son to change our eternity, to be the perfect sacrifice for us. Love on a cross, dying once for all, laid to rest in the darkness of a tomb. Today, as we face so many unknowns, may we remember the simple truth of Easter. The stone's been rolled away. The grave is empty. Jesus is alive. And love has risen. I invite you to take your Bible, if you have it with you, and turn to John chapter 3, verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. This is a verse that's very familiar to most of us, and maybe it'll be familiar to you. If not, by the end of the message, I believe it'll be familiar to you as well. And it's a verse that a lot of us memorized when we first became believers in Jesus, a verse that might have been used to lead us to become believers in Jesus. But these are words that are spoken by Jesus. This is a context where he's talking to a religious man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus wants to know about Jesus, wants to know more about Jesus. But in this conversation, Jesus gives what is probably the best known verse of the New Testament. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for everyone who's joined us today here in the auditorium, in the student ministry auditorium, and then online. Lord, we're grateful to have all of them here as a part of this service today. This is a day to celebrate. This is a day for us to rejoice because the one who gave his life for us is alive. And I pray, Lord, today that because you're alive, we'll recognize the greatness of the love that you have for us, that love has risen. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, this is Easter Sunday, and this is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Actually, as believers in Jesus, as a church, we celebrate his resurrection every Sunday. But there's one Sunday a year that's set apart from all the other days of the year and that's Easter Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus in a very special and wonderful way. Sometimes people want to know, why in the world do you want to celebrate Easter in this particular fashion? Well, I want you to understand that it is the resurrection of Jesus that makes Christianity unique to all of the other world religions that there are. No matter what their name may be, no matter uh, who the founder of that religion may be, it is the resurrection of Jesus. Certainly his death makes it unique, 
His life makes it unique. His birth makes it unique. But it is his resurrection above everything else that is the cornerstone of our faith and of Christianity. For instance, Confucius died and he was buried. Lao Tzu, the father of Taoism, wandered off into the wilderness and he died with his water buffalo. The Buddha rotted away from food poisoning. Muhammad died in 632 and remains right where he was buried. Actually, they built a mosque over the top of it. But Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and it's on this single truth that we find our hope of the human race and for the human race, both in this life and in the life to come. The fact that Jesus is alive changes everything. It changes everything. I was thinking about an old song that we used to sing, still sometimes do sing. It was written back in the first part of the 20th century. It says, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. In just the time I need him, he's always near. And then the chorus goes, he lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. And many of you today got up knowing that he's alive because not only do you read the scriptures and know the evidence, but he lives within your heart today and you've communed already. You've been communing with the one who was very much alive. And there's always somebody that wonders, well, why is that so important? Is that such a significant deal? Well, you know, sometimes there is profundity in simplicity. And I think about the Buddhist who was living in Africa, true story. And he had grown up most of his life following the tenets of Buddhism. But at some point, someone came and brought him the truth of the gospel, told him about Jesus Christ, and he put his faith in the living Lord. He put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And his response, I think, summarizes everything that I want you to see in these opening moments. He said, it's like this. If you were walking along and came to a fork in the road and two men were there and one was dead and the other was alive, which man's directions would you follow? Makes sense, doesn't it? Profundity in simplicity. I mean, because Jesus is alive, we know that everything he did and everything he said is true. Because Jesus is alive, we know that the Father accepted his payment on the cross of Calvary. Because Jesus is alive, we can experience the love of God that reconciles us to himself. Because Jesus is alive, we know that the message of John chapter 3, verse 16 is, in fact, true. Because Jesus spoke these words and Jesus is alive, we can declare these words are truth. Herschel Hobbes, who was a Southern Baptist pastor in the 20th century, said John three sixteen is the gospel in superlatives. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, called it the Bible in miniature. A.T. Robertson, who was a Greek scholar, referred to it as the little gospel. Little in the sense that it's one verse, but it summarizes the entire message of the Bible from beginning to end, that God loves us and gave his son for us. 
Maybe a more contemporary illustration. Some of you in my age bracket, you'll remember in the 70s and 80s, you'd watch a sporting event on television. It could be basketball or football or baseball. And there was this, this guy who had this wig, this multicolored, rainbow-colored wig, and he'd put it on. And I don't know how he did it. I don't know how it was accomplished. But he was always somehow able to get on one of the cameras. And they always pointed the camera at him. And do you remember the sign that he would hold up with that multicolored hair? It said, John 316. If you don't know that man's name, his name is Rollin Stewart. He, he didn't turn out too good. He got in some trouble and not necessarily a great representative of Jesus Christ. But he understood something, and that was that this message of John 3.16 is vitally important. The living Savior spoke these words. Uh, th think about a, a more contemporary. Some of the younger people will know this name, Tim Tebow, uh, the Heisman Trophy winner, the man who played professional football for a short time and then played baseball and who's now an outstanding spokesman for the Christian faith. You remember when he was playing for Florida and he'd have the eye black under his eyes and you remember the time he put it there and on this cheek it said John and on this cheek it said 316 and every time the camera would zoom in on him the end result was they were reading John 3.16. Somebody asked him one time, why is it that you so unashamedly wore that? Is eye black beneath your eyes? And he says, because it's the very essence of our Christianity. It's the essence of our hope. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I want you to consider that verse. Since it was spoken from the lips of one who is living today, the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to consider that verse of Scripture with me for a few minutes, and let's talk about God's love. First of all, we want to talk about its greatness, its greatness. Do you realize that every person in this room and every person who is watching, that all of you have a unique personality? It's unique to you. Some of you have friends and family members that say, yeah, it's really, really unique. But, but you have a unique personality that's unique to you. Uh, it's a makeup of, of your parents as you were growing up or the experiences of your life or maybe things that uh, surrounded you while you were going to school, but it all becomes a part of your personality. You know that there's some people who walk into a room and they have this huge, big personality. They, they light up the room. I mean, everybody knows they're there when they're there. And then there's a whole lot of other people that are more like me that I just soon slip into the room and nobody even notice that I'm there. And there's a lot of gradation between those two extremes. Everybody has a personality. It doesn't make anybody more important than the other. It just makes us different, right? It just makes us different. But did you know that God has a personality? And he's known by a number of different attributes. We could talk about his justice or his righteousness or that he is truth. Uh, we could talk about his grace or his mercy. Uh, we could talk about his omniscience or his omnipresence. Uh, we could talk about his immutability, meaning that he never changes. All of these things go into making up the personality of the one that we call God. But do you know at the very core of the personality of God is love? At the very core of the personality of God is love. It is his very essence. It is the very nature of God that he is love. 
Listen to it, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is. He doesn't just love. God is love. Think about that for a moment. God is love. And it's interesting in the passage that we're looking at, for God so loved. Jesus uses an adverb to amplify to magnify, to intensify the reality of the love that he has for us. I mean, this love is not just love. This is love that is so loved. I mean, this is a love that goes beyond anything that you and I can understand fully or comprehend totally. And yet we know because the living Savior says that God loves the world. He so loved the world. Really, the greatest question for secular philosophers today is not the origin of evil, though they're always working on that one, thinking they're coming to an answer. Really, the greatest question is the existence of love and moral good. For they exist as reflections of the God who created us and cannot be explained or defined apart from him. In other words, if you want to know what love is, you have to know something about God. And because God is love, we understand something about love and moral good. God is love. I I want you to go home with that thought ringing in your mind that the living Savior says to you over and over again, God so loved the world. Several years ago, there was an owner of a dog, and it went missing And so the owner placed an ad in the newspaper. You know how that is. If you love pets, uh, you know that if your pet's missing, you're deeply concerned and you're looking, you go out calling for the pet, you want the pet to come home. Well, this was a pet that they dearly loved and they wanted to find it. So they put this ad in the newspaper and this is what it read. Lost dog, brown hair with several mange spots, right leg is broken, walks with a slight limp, Left eye is missing, ears are mangled, tail has been severed, answers to the name Lucky. (laughs) Pretty good name for that dog, wouldn't you say? Have you ever stopped to think how lucky we are to have a God whose core nature is love? And may I change the wording just a little bit? Have you ever stopped to think about how blessed we are? to have a God whose core nature is love. For God so loved are words that were spoken by the living Savior. In one of his books, Tony Campalo, who was a sociologist or was a sociologist, uh, he was a speaker. He was a professing Christian. I didn't always agree with some of his progressive ideas. But he tells in one of his books a story about when he was a young boy and he was going to junior high camp. One of the boys that came to camp that year was named Billy. He had cerebral palsy. When he walked in his familiar, halting, stumbling gait, some of the other boys followed him and mocked him. When he spoke, he tried to enunciate, but the other boys mimicked his contorted face. And then out of spite... One evening, they volunteered him, Billy, to give evening devotions around the campfire. Campalo said it was excruciating. It took five minutes for Billy to say seven words. 
I love Jesus and Jesus loves me. Several years later, Kampala was speaking at a conference and he shared the platform with several other speakers. Afterwards, one of the speakers approached Kampala and said, you don't remember me, but I was in church camp with Billy. I'm one of the boys who made fun of him, mimicked him, and volunteered him to give devotions. But what you don't know is that I was also one of the boys who cried the night he gave his devotion. He said, those seven words changed my life. I love God. I love Jesus. And Jesus loves me. The living Savior comes. And he says, I want you to understand God loves you. Let's talk secondly about its object. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. The Greek word for world is cosmos. It refers to the inhabitants of the world. It refers to you and me and everybody who lives in this world. Can you imagine the God of heaven, the sovereign God of heaven who sits above the circle of the earth, who sits above the circle of the universe, who sits above and beyond the circle of the galaxy? That that God who is transcendent could even see or pay attention to those of us who are less than a speck. We're less than a speck. I mean, less than a speck of dust. And yet he sees us and he knows us and he loves us. The truth about God is that we are the objects of his love. Isn't that amazing? That we are the objects of the love of God? God loves the poor and he loves the rich. He loves men and women and boys and girls. God loves the older person who's using a walker to shuffle down the sidewalk. And he loves the newborn dozing in her mother's arms. He loves the strong and healthy. He loves the weak, the sick, the abandoned, the broken. God loves the educated and the illiterate. He loves those from every people group, black, white, and brown. God loves the self-disciplined, and he loves the addict. He loves the high and mighty, and he loves the low and powerless and oppressed. Can you imagine? God loves every person. God loves you. Someone might ask, how can he love me after all I've done? If he knew what I have done, how could he love me? Hey, he already knows what you've done. And he still says that he loves you. And by the way, God will never stop reaching out to you in his love. You will never be beyond the grasp of his love. If you're willing to allow him to love you, you will never be beyond the grasp of his love. There is no one who is so sinful that God can't and won't reach them. There is no one. Think about some of the characters of the Bible, if you just want to get an idea of that. Abraham was the son of an idolater. Jacob was a deceiver. David was an adulterer and a murderer. The apostle Matthew was a dreaded tax gatherer, a collaborator with Rome against his own people. 
Uh, Paul was a murderer and a persecutor of the church. He murdered someone uh, and persecuted the church. That's when the murder occurred. The early believers in Ephesus were pagans who practiced witchcraft. Those in the church at Corinth included those who had been fornicators and idolaters and thieves and drunkards and revilers, and the list just goes on. And you say, well, you know, I haven't committed adultery and I haven't stolen something and I haven't been like those that you describe, but the fact of the matter is that among us, all of us have violated God's law. All of us have come short of God's perfection. None of us can measure up to that perfection of the Almighty God. You, you understand what the Bible says about all of us? The way we were born, we came into this world, and how we conduct ourselves in this world. The Bible teaches that we're all sinners. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says that we're all ungodly. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. The Bible says that we're unjust. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. It says that we're wicked. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 tells us the whole world lies in wickedness. I mean, none of us are exempt, even if we haven't committed some of the really big sins. The fact of the matter is we are all sinners, and the real question is not whether God finds it difficult to love us. The real question is how God finds it possible to love us at all. I mean, after all, we turned our backs on him, and we were walking away from him. We were, in essence, shaking our fist in his face. But the fact is, God loves you in spite of that. And he does not ever stop seeking after you. And because he loves you, there is always hope. And there is always hope for everyone. This kind of love was beautifully described in a story that I read by a lady named Mary Ann Bird. I want to read you her words. She wrote, I grew up knowing I was different and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate. And when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others. A little girl with misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. When schoolmates asked, what happened to your lip? I'd tell them I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. She goes on, I was convinced that no one outside my family could love me. There was, however, she says, a teacher in the second grade whom we all adored. Her name was Mrs. Leonard. You're going to love this description of her. She was short, round, happy. She said she was a sparkling lady. Annually, we had a hearing test. Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class, and finally, it was my turn. I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something, and we would have to repeat it back. Things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? I waited there for those words that God must have put into her mouth, those seven words that changed my life. 
Mrs. Leonard said in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. I wish you were my little girl. Do you understand that that's what God is saying through John chapter 3, verse 16, to every person who is deformed by sin, to every soul that is damaged by worldliness? Do you hear what he is saying? He's saying, I wish you were my son. I wish you were my daughter. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's a third fact about John 3.16 I want you to see, and that has to do with its sacrifice. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, meaning his one and only son. In other words, God gave the very best of heaven for you and for me. God sent Jesus through the womb of the Virgin Mary to be the God-man who lived the sinlessly perfect life that you and I can never sin so that when he was nailed to the cross, he could take the penalty and the punishment of our sins on himself and suffer the separation from God that we deserved. And he could pay it in full to be put in a tomb and then to rise on that third day so that he could give to anyone the gift of eternal life. Do you realize that's because of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's because of what he has done for us. And when you give your one and only, your best, you can't give any more than that. He gave his very best. God the Father gave his very best. Jesus gave his very best, his life. I want you to think about the person that's treated you the worst in life. Somebody that has treated you the worst in life. Maybe you have an enemy. Maybe it's someone at work or it's a neighbor or maybe it's even somebody in your own family. But you've been treated horribly by this person. Being around this individual is what I like to say, like eating sand. You ever tried that? It's like eating sand. It's miserable. Suppose this evil person is in terrible need. Let's just say they're in the hospital in critical condition and they're needing a kidney transplant in order to survive. Would you be willing to help that person in costly ways? Would you give thousands of dollars to help them? Would you volunteer to donate a kidney? Would you ask the person you love most in the world to donate his or her kidney? Would you ask the person you love most to do this if you knew that the surgery would result in unthinkable suffering and loss to you? Would you sacrifice the person you love most to die so that the person you dislike most and that most dislikes you could live? Would you do that? Just imagine for a moment saying goodbye to the person you love most and seeing him or her in a wheelchair rolled into the hospital. And a few days later, you come back and you're standing there outside the doors and you see this individual that has treated you so horribly rolling in a wheelchair out of those same doors because of your loved one who gave his life. Would you do that? 
Well, listen to what it says about God. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. I mean, while we're shaking our fist in his face, turning our back and walking away from him, even though we were sinners, God loved us so much that he gave his very best, his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. In 1944, C.E. Goodman wrote the slogan for Hallmark. How many of you have spent way too much money on Hallmark cards? <laughs> yeah, I'm in that same category with you sometimes, not as often as I should be. But do you know what that slogan is? They stand by it. 78 years later, they still stand by that slogan. Do you know what it says? When you care enough to send the very best. Can I tell you what God did? God cared enough to send the very best. God loved you enough that he sent his one and only son to be your savior. When we consider Jesus we know that God cared enough to send his best. But then finally, I want to talk about God's love, and I want us to think about its offer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Think about that for a moment. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, not as a historical figure, somebody who just lived in the past, was a good moral individual, maybe died a martyr's death, but you believe that Jesus is the one who came from heaven, who died for your sins and for mine and rose again on that Easter Sunday morning and lives today to save anyone and everyone who comes to him. I want you to know that it's all yours for believing. I don't know how much you know about the Masters, the Masters Golf Tournament. Some of you, you just checked out on me, so you don't know anything about the Masters Golf Tournament. Please educate yourselves. This is going to be important when you get to heaven. Please, please educate yourselves. I'm, I'm joking with you. But this past weekend, I watched a little bit of the Masters. I didn't get to see a lot of it, but I watched a little bit of it. And I, I was really impressed with the 25-year-old man that won the tournament, uh, three strokes, won by three strokes. And he was giving, a, you know, an interview afterwards, and he said that he played golf to give glory to God. I like that. I don't know if he's a believer or not. I have an idea that he might be a believer. But if you know anything about the Masters, you know it's one of the premier tournaments if not the premier tournament for, 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 for uh, professional golfers. And it's played at the Augusta National Golf Club. I've never been there. I've been by there. You can't drive on to Magnolia Lane unless you're invited, but uh, I've driven by there. And it's the most incredibly beautiful place if you've watched it on TV. The rolling hills and the meandering streams. The, the grass is greener than any grass I've ever seen. Surely they must paint it before the tournament begins. And that's all augmented with those beautiful Georgia azaleas that are everywhere. But the way it used to be when I was a younger man and was more interested in those kinds of things was that if you wanted to go to that tournament, you had to enter your name in a lottery. 
And they would choose out the names, and whatever names were chosen, they were able to purchase tickets in order to get into the Masters. It didn't matter how good a golfer you were. It didn't matter the club or the golf club that you belonged to. It didn't matter how much money you were worth. It didn't matter your family connections at Augusta National. Unless your name was drawn in the lottery, you're going to watch the Masters on TV at home. Or you might watch it on your neighbor's TV if he's got one of the 70-inch ones. But there were no exceptions. But I want you to listen to what the living Savior says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, his one and only Son, now listen, that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you hear that word? That means that you're not left out, that you can experience the love of God and the forgiveness of God, that you can be given the gift of eternal life today because God so loved the world that he gave the very best of heaven and he made it available to whoever would believe in Jesus Christ. Isn't that an incredible offer? You don't have to wait for your name to be drawn out of a hat in some kind of a lottery. He opens, the, he opens the gate to everyone, anyone who will believe in Jesus can become a child of the living God. Bennett Kerf was the founder of the Random House Publishing, and he tells a, a very moving story. I want to tell you about this story. There was a child that was in a children's home who was somewhat of a troubled child, sort of difficult to be able to deal with. And the workers at the home were looking for an excuse to move this unwanted child to another children's home. That'll certainly make them feel wanted, right? And one day they saw this child running across the grounds to a tree and climbing up the tree. And she deposited a note in the branches of that tree. When the child was gone, the workers rushed out to that tree and they retrieved the note and they opened it up and this is what it said. If anybody finds this note, I love you. If anybody finds this note, I love you. Our world treats God like an unwanted child in a children's home. But even to the world that doesn't love him, God says in John 3, 16, if anyone finds this note, I love you. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that magnificent? Isn't that wonderful? Do you understand that if Jesus is still in the grave and we're going to worship somebody who died as nothing more than a martyr, those words don't mean anything. But because Jesus is alive, Jesus comes to every one of us with this most beautiful note. And he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Can it really be that simple, preacher? Yeah. Let me put it for you in four two-word sentences. God loves he gave, we believe, we live. Did you get it? That's John three sixteen. God loves, he gave, 
We believe, we live.